I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Today's guest is someone I've been meaning to get on the show since this podcast started over two years ago. That's because he's one of the smartest and most eloquent executives anywhere in the sector. We overuse the word pioneer, but Michael Millette has made a career out of innovating at the highest end of our business. He and a handful of others created the ILS market out of nothing in the mid-1990s. Then, after two incredibly successful decades at Goldman Sachs, in 2016, he launched Hudson Structured Capital Management. Hudson Structured is a pretty unique business because it is combining alternative asset management and finance with venture capital. I can't think of another business in insurance with such eclectic tastes. It can get involved in the sector from so many angles and at so many points in the value chain. It's fascinating and very liberating. Mike has an incredibly broad and deep understanding of the insurance and reinsurance sector, all the way up from the first dollar of personal alliance premium to the last cap bond bought by a long-term investor. He's also fun and outspoken, and is never afraid to take an unambiguous view on topics. In this podcast, we cover a huge variety of subject matter, from the mid-year cat renewals to ABC, which is Mike's shorthand for all but cat. For me, he's one of those people who make you feel like your IQ just went up a few points after you've spent some time in their company. So I won't come between you and enlightenment any longer. Enjoy the podcast. Mike, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Thanks, Mark. This is great to have time with you today. It's fantastic to have you on the show. You must get really tired of doing this, but Hudson Structured is a really interesting organization, and it's quite unique, I think. So I hope you don't mind giving us a quick overview of Hudson Structured for those who don't know. Well, certainly. I worked with partners to start Hudson in 2015 after 21 years as a banker and after reflecting on what I saw in the market. And what I saw is that pensions and endowments value lightly correlated assets and that most funds in off-the-run sectors were being formed very, very narrow missions, CAT only, or more likely CAT bond only, or CRI only, airplanes only, or more likely midlife airplanes only. And Hudson was founded on the notion that long-term investors would appreciate the opportunity to invest across lightly correlated sectors to make sure that they're harvesting the best relative value in reinsurance, whether it's in runoff casualty, in CAT CRI, or in distribution roll-up. The best relative value, whether it's in ship planes, containers, or rails, or surface transport in the transportation sector. That was our vision. That's the basis. That's the way we opened our doors in 2016. If you're describing to someone who's asking, well, so what exactly do you do then? How do you want to be perceived in the sector? Is there a particular problem you're trying to solve? Is that how you describe yourself? Is it you're trying to provide really diversificatory investments for institutional investors? We're seeking to put capital to work for long-term investors in parts of the broad sector that have a favorable risk-return profile. And that may be driven by opportunity, and that may be driven by stress. But we will look for either and move capital toward those places. You want to be known for being some of the smartest people investing all the way across insurance and insurance value chain. Well, we hope that we'll be known for being careful people that are thinking about quite a few things across the sector. So 
one of the things I set out to do is to build a team that was deep enough to have that sort of approach to investing. We have eight actuaries. We have six former C-suite officers of insurance entities. We sit down every week and at greater length every quarter. And we think about systematically, sector by sector of the whole insurance and reinsurance world, what's going on, where there might be value, where there might not be value. We try to not only pick good spots, we try to pick bad spots so that we know what we're trying to stay away from. What's wonderful is that you've created this great rainbow of opportunity here with Hudson. So as you're looking at your rainbow of of different opportunities, where are the best ones and where are the worst ones you think on the spectrum at the moment? Well, I've got to say that it hasn't been an easy five and a half years since we started managing. It wasn't great timing, let's say. No, it was, a, it was wretched timing. You know, I've been in the sector for 25 plus years and I managed to come in on the back of a 10-year period of relatively peaceful weather. The stretch from Wilma to Harvey was a very calm time and a lot of geniuses were born. <laughs> and I'm sure I met some of them, Mike. We managed to start up right in front of two years of horrendous cat experience two years of bad cat experience, and one year of below average. And that's 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. So timing wasn't great. And other things happened. We've had a war, we had a pandemic. But what I can say now is what I said at my own company's board meeting, the array of opportunities in front of us right now are perhaps the best array of opportunities since we started the array of opportunities in front of the industry are as good an array as the industry has had in front of it since perhaps 9-11, so in 20 years. And that is because serial disruptions of a whole series of sectors have created pricing and term changes. Many types of policies can be rebuilt. It's an interesting time for the industry. To go back to that point you made about that benign period for CAT when many geniuses were born, Obviously, anyone observing this sector in the high end of the reinsurance sector would have noticed the absence of those geniuses has affected the market quite largely. I'm sure plenty of people would like those days to come back. Will anything ever trigger that abundance of risk capital in that space to come back? And if so, what would trigger it? You know, I'll say that we're at a moment where long-term investors want it to come back. They want to believe that this will work. They're not sure that it will because they've had five years of difficult CAT experience. The vast majority of fund offerings are almost entirely CAT, and they've been told each time that it will be better next year. So they want to believe because we're in a world where developed economies have been involved in extensive quantitative easing and literally money printing for decades since the financial crisis, where most markets even if they've sold off a little bit lately, are still near historic highs and where the world seems to offer all sorts of disruption. My partner and co-founder, David Andrews, starts off our Monday morning meeting every week. And this past Monday, his starting out speech was, he said, well, we've got a war going on in Eastern Europe and the U.S. economy seems headed for stagflation. And the European economy seems to be headed for outright recession. And developing economies seem to be in turmoil. But the equity markets are holding up okay. (laughs) Pension funds get that joke. 
They would love to diversify. They want us to do a better job. And are we going to get that chance to do a better job? And obviously, withdrawal of capacity, difficult times. I would like to get your assessment of where we are with risk adequacy in pricing. When you look at some of the graphs, it doesn't look that exciting. Would it be enough to entice anyone in with some new capital? Cap pricing was on an historic plateau from 06 to 012. And it was a long plateau, and it was driven by, in the first place, the 0405 hurricanes, then by the financial crisis, and at the very end, by the onset of earthquakes in the Pacific. So there were about six years of marvelous pricing, a little below the post-Andrew peak, but the most persistent and long period of high prices that we've probably ever seen. Because remember, before Andrew, there were no catastrophes of note all the way back to Camille. People can quibble about David and Capella. And we didn't really have a cap market in the sense that we do now in the 1960s, 50s, 40s, so on. That's just before I was born, so <laughs> does it count? No. Well, I study it. You know, I'm still horrified by the 1920s. If we had the cat experience of the 1920s today, people would pull their hair up. You and I wouldn't have that issue. The 23 Tokyo earthquake, the 26 Miami hurricane, the 28 Jupiter hurricane, you know, would have looked a lot like the last five years. So, you know, this isn't unique. It's actually much less bad than that five-year period was. But back to the show. So we had this period of high prices, 06 to 012, and we have had such a sharp reflex in the capital markets of coming back in to meet distress in cap that we failed to climb back up to the 2012 pricing plateau over five years of nasty experience. Meanwhile, even if we did climb over the edge, right onto the plateau and plant our flag victoriously, our view is we'd still be a little bit short because risk has obviously increased since 2012 in the past decade. We clearly have an uptick in frequency of all sorts of events. And we believe that that's climate driven. We have a a serious uptick in legal claims inflation. And right now we have an additional uptick post coronavirus of economic inflation. So once we finish the job of climbing onto the 2012 plateau, we now have to climb up another X percent to offer investors the same deal we were able to offer them 10 years ago. So that's CAT. So CAT's better than it has been since 2014, and it's still not quite there. Yeah. And will we get there, do you think, this time? It feels like there's sort of one last heave going on, the upcoming mid-year renewals. We will start to get there at mid-year, I predict, because capital is pulling back. But let's go back to what I was saying before, because it's a lazy habit to talk about cat. Let's talk about ABC, all but cat. (laughs) You know, when I said that we had the best opportunity set we've had in five and a half years, part of it is that Cap pricing is certainly better in terms of starting to move. But part of it is that the broad specialty property market is in much better shape than it was. And you can see that in Lloyd's. Lloyd's lost money for four years in a row, finally made money again last year. And the war will instigate changes in the political violence, political confiscation, aviation, marine, and trade credit markets that will drive another round of pricing in specialty property. We have had substantial hardening in casualty. We still have a very uneven view of that sector for a variety of reasons. There are great ways to put capital to work in the life health sector. 
and great ways to put capital to work in the distribution and services sector. So there is more to do across the reinsurance space outside of CAP than there has been in many years. Many of you might have heard the name Anaplan, but do you know how it's being used in our industry? I'm going to ask Connor Donahoe and Dan Ellis some quick-fire questions. Connor, what is Anaplan? Well, very simply, Anaplan is a best-in-class cloud-based planning and modelling platform that's used extensively by the insurance sector. And who's using it? Top-performing MGAs, syndicates, intermediaries and full-stack insurers. We have about 70 insurance clients in the UK alone. And Dan, within those insurers, which departments are using it? Well, we work with everyone from finance, actuarial to HR and everyone in between. And what are they using it for? They're using it for a wide range of different business planning, everything from their technical planning to their actuarial planning, even just general business planning. But they can do all of this within a platform where results are recalculated in real time and is all connected. And in practical terms, how's Anaplan helping their business? This is done in three main areas. Firstly, through robust models, where our customers have resilient models, but are still flexible enough to run multiple scenarios. Through collaborative working, where we're getting rid of silos and we bring all users together with one version of the truth. So everything's connected. Exactly. And finally, through scalability. Because it's on the cloud, Anaplan is really easy for our customers to scale as their business grows. So what's the real benefit for an insurer, Connor? Well, ultimately, when insurers use Anaplan, they're improving the quality and speed of their decision making. It gives insurers the agility to easily predict and respond to internal and external changes to their business. And we don't think it's just a coincidence that our customers also happen to be the best performing insurers in the market. Insurers are already doing a lot of modelling, and some of them are doing it without Anaplan. Why should they consider changing? The main resistance to change that we often see is that comfort with Excel. But what we want to do is take those modelling skills and really supercharge them in an environment that's fit for purpose. And with that, we're backing it up with our industry knowledge. You know, we've done this over 70 times with a variety of different insurers. So how can we find out more? Very easily, check out anaplan.com, or even better, connect with us on LinkedIn. I'm Connor Donahue. I'm Daniel Ellis. And all the links are going to be in the notes. As one of the pioneers of securitization in our industry, we're always talking about the next perils that might get securitized. Obviously, it's a huge amount being done. Where do you think the next peril to be securitized, you know, in cap bond form or anything similar is going to come from? Would it be something like cyber? We've been hearing talk about it for quite a while. And obviously, there's real need there. Well, I'm always impressed by this dialogue because we've, in fact, been doing collateralized reinsurance of cyber for five (laughs) years now. And so it's very real to us. I think what you need to do is open up your stance. Different types of risk are suited to different types of vehicles. They're not all going to look like cat bonds. You know, casualty risk is not going to look like a cat bond. Putting up a bunch of capital that sits in short-term paper and waiting out the whole tail of casualty is not going to work well. But casualty runoff companies effectively function like capital market instruments with allocations of their equity effectively being adverse development covers on the blocks of assets and liabilities whose delivery they undertake. They also invest suitably for a 10-year tail or a five-year tail. Similarly, life health runoff blocks look a lot more like runoff casualty blocks than they look like ILS per se. There have been very successful ILS in areas like auto and health, and we'd love to see more. So we're going to see a diverse array of vehicles. And you're not one of the people who would say, oh, well, everything would be securitized at some point. 
it's ironic since I was so deeply involved in securitizing <laughs> many of these things in the first place. But I've never said that. I've been saying for 25 years at conferences that the issue for investors is to think about how to package and trade these different risks efficiently, not to jam them all into the same structure, which is a structure that we developed 25 years ago. Talking about your direct investments, obviously you've made some investments in insurtech, some quite prominent ones. Where are you seeing some of the best investment opportunities in the insurtech arena, obviously, because it's everywhere? Our insurtech activity is multifaceted and we have a fantastic team. And I will do only a second-rate rendering of their thought leadership on my own. Vikas Singhal, Adrian Jones, Andrew Sagan, and the broader team are very closely in touch with the entire sector. InsureTech is interesting and it's different from other types of tech development because in a certain sense, it's redundant. And in a certain sense, it's endogenous. So let me try to explain what I mean. You know, BJ Dowling has a wonderful slide that we've reused generally with credit given numerous times where he shows that this industry has been at the tech forefront in every generation. Mainframe computers were adopted gleefully by insurers after World War II and used with punch cards to manage policies. Desktop computers were part of Bermuda. In a certain way, Bermuda was enabled by the desktop. And one of the reasons Bermuda appeared when it did is because that technology was available when it was. And then the laptop and phone permit a new generation, and we're seeing that. So many people in the insurtech sector and in the tech sector like to see themselves as disrupting the non-technical insurance industry. The reality is more complicated. The industry has been one of the most tech-developed sectors on earth for 100 years. Actuaries were the original tech. And the industry has a certain amount of what is known in the tech world as tech deficit. In a way, they have to get over prior generations of tech to adopt new ones. They're developing countries that are going straight into cell phones and never building networks of landlines. Landlines, in some respects, are an example of tech deficit. So that's complicated for the industry, and it's part of the slowness of the advent of InsurTech. And the second part of the slowness of the advent of InsurTech, because tech has penetrated many other sectors much more quickly than it has this one, is that people in tech see insurance as a quantitative or an administrative business. It's actually very personal. It's this very technical business that ultimately is what we should all do is get on a podcast and talk about feelings, Mark. Let's all talk about feelings. Because what insurance involves is people analyzing and understanding their risk and then trying to quantify how much of that they're willing to bear and how much of that they're not willing to bear. And then trying to package that risk into legal documents and price it. And then sending money away to people that they hope they'll never talk to again. Because if they do, it means the risk has realized. And nobody wants to do any of those things. Nobody gets out of bed wanting to do those things. So you do them with your brother-in-law because he's around and he's your insurance agent. And the industry is a very personal industry. So InsurTech in 2022 is coming on strong as FinTech did 10 years ago. But it's coming on strong on a multi-front basis. 
It's coming on strong in big data. Insurance is the homeland of big data. It came on 20 years ago in cap modeling. It's coming on now in fields like cyber and casualty modeling and all sorts of analytics and drone technology and deep map infrastructure analysis. It's coming on in administration, in making all of the clunky pipes in the industry flow faster and better. It's coming on in customer experience. Two words rarely seen together in this industry. Trying to produce an interface where customers feel like they understand their risk and they understand their product. It's coming on in, if not disintermediation, and what we call empowered intermediation. You know, there was an early belief in Silicon Valley that all insurance agents were going to be replaced with machines. Our belief is that what tech should hope to do is to weaponize agents, fewer, better agents, armed to the teeth with analytics and insurance exchanges that they can access for their customers quickly and effectively. So I think we're at the right moment because I've been watching InsurTech fail for most of my career. I still remember like Tom Cholnoki put together a report and showed the websites of every big PNC company in about 1999 back at Goldman. And that was the future, except it didn't happen. People still looked at the websites, but nobody started selling anything out of those websites for years and years. No, they were more like just a big brochure, weren't they, at the time? Obviously, InsurTech is maturing because we've had public companies created in the last couple of years. Has their experience been a help or a hindrance really to other insurtechs and other investments that are still below the radar? I think it's been turbulent, but fine. We had about a half dozen full stack carrier insurtechs go public very early, in part because of the intersection of insurtech and the SPAC boom. It was early for some of those companies to go public. They were still some distance away from being cash flow sufficient, still developing their business models. In many cases, even at depressed values in the public markets, they're still well above, let's say, their C round in the private market, if not their D round. There was a lot more drama staged in public than there was in private, meaning you had a lot of these companies go to a C and D round, go public sharply above their D round, rise very sharply from there, and then fall in a huge way. And they've landed back maybe where they should be, probably in some cases lower. So it hasn't been negatives. It's not affecting all the valuations along the value chain because it's more like these guys, they got lucky and they've got a billion dollars in the bank, but some of their IPO investors have lost 80%. But that's the nature of, of investing in an insurtech IPO, one presumes. Well, I do want to express unhappiness for IPO investors who had losses. In some cases, the companies are well below their IPO price. Some of the companies actually traded up and down in there near their IPO price. So it varies. In the private markets, I think that we're seeing more thoughtfulness about the price increments from A to B to C to D rounds, but the private markets are still functioning fairly efficiently because many of these companies are gaining traction in a way they never have before. Even some of the more distressed public companies are working with cash on balance sheet that should carry them well past the point at which they become cash flow sufficient. So I think that investors have been trying to find the right spot for value. They started high, they went higher, they've gone low. I expect over the balance of 22, we'll be getting back into a realistic range. It's going to help price prior rounds. So it's pretty healthy. And then I want to set you up on what you said about that sort of leapfrog ability that you get in the developing nation where you don't have to put copper in the ground because you can just put masks up on the end of every street and leapfrog that technology. 
Do you think there is a leapfrogability in some of these? And that's where this idea of disruption has come from in some of these businesses? Or I don't know about you, but I personally haven't seen any of that. And I've seen much more collaboration than attempts to leapfrog. Well, there's both. So in particular, on the analytic and service side of the business, I think there is more ability to leapfrog. And people talk about insure techs and they think about half dozen full stack carriers. The reality is much broader. Our HPIX index has almost 20 different members and they go across distribution, full stack, analytics, and administrative functions. So there are many companies outside of full stack are catching an edge. But even in the full stack carriers, as I said, I think that many of the companies now are getting in hailing distance of cash flow self-sufficiently. That's going to be an interesting moment for the insurance world. So that's why I think that InsurTech is actually at an interesting point after two decades of development. Mike, you mentioned about distribution. A phenomenon that's been happening over the last couple of years has been this boom in hybrid or fronting hybrid carriers in the US market particularly. I'd love to pick your considerable brains on why you think that's happening? Obviously, we've had fronting carriers and hybrid kind of carriers forever, but why are we having such a boom now? We're uncertain about this. So what we've had over the past couple of years is a rapid development of MGAs and a corollary development of fronting carriers. And the industry has a long history here. It goes back to the 18th century. You know, we always had a division between capital agents and underwriters at Lloyd's. Until very recently when the ILVs, the Lloyd's Integrated Vehicles, were formed and now they're just real companies like Hiscox. There have been periods of time where the misalignment between having paid originators and separate balance sheets that are intakers, where that misalignment has hurt the industry in periods where the entrepreneurship of being able to have independent shops underwriting business, and then separately portfolio managers assessing that work and then measuring their mix of business where that dynamic has worked well. It doesn't all go one way and it doesn't all last forever. You and I have both been through periods of time where program business was a dirty work. I think that at the moment, in some respects, because we've seen such a rapid consolidation across agency and brokerage, High content entrepreneurial brokers have sought to create their own shops, and many of them really do have superior underwriting to offer. And at the same time, balance sheet companies have sought to get outside of the vaguely oligopsonistic circle of brokers that they face and source business in other ways. So distribution consolidation has very likely generated this backwash of MGAs and fronting companies. I think the fronting companies are in many ways a response to the MGAs. It isn't that fronting companies on their own are very meaningful. You mentioned about the consolidation in broking. It seems like this eternal promise always someone comes up with a slide saying, we're going to run out of brokers to consolidate. Do you think we ever will? My theory is that, of course, there are always new, very small brokers being created all the time. It's just that we don't see them because they're invisible to us until they get over whatever, $10 million of revenue or something. And they'll always be there to consolidate in the future. Or do you really think we are getting to a point where there aren't that many left and it's the end game for consolidation, particularly in the US market? It's actually natural that we're seeing what we're seeing. 
What we're seeing is that as entities consolidate, many of the best feel as though they can go out on their own. And many of the best people trained in the big companies feel like they can build their own equity and build their own brand. At the same time, globalization, tech, make a persuasive argument for consolidation. Larger companies that can provide global service, that can provide a better tech platform, that have the capital to do those things are more powerful. So I think that over time you have a drift toward larger and larger organizations, but it's never unidirectional. You always have some people falling out of that drift and forming entrepreneurial shops underneath the shadow of hippopotami and mastodons and <laughs> tyrannosauri that are increasing in scale with every year. And we've watched that go on over our whole lifetimes in banking. So when I graduated from college in 1987, I think that for my first banking job, I applied to for Chicago, Bank One, JP Morgan, Chemical Bank, Manufacturers, Hanover, Chase Manhattan. And so all six are part of JPM right now. You can go through similar exercises we used to have multiple big banks in every significant city in the United States. We effectively have a half dozen supersized banks and a small number of supersized foreign banks operating in the U.S., and then a couple of middle-sized ones. The sweep of consolidation has been majestic and enormous, but at the same time, some of the stars do spin out and form entities like Molis and PJT. And, you know, every generation we see a couple of new ones, Evercore. So in very high content industries, some of the highest content workers will always be able to build equity themselves, but that doesn't stop the drift toward consolidation. Right. So we believe in both arms of that. We finance consolidation, we finance some MGAs. It's interesting. But you think it's healthy? We're not going to end up at some place where obviously we have ended up, of course, at a place where competition authorities had to intervene. You could argue that it wasn't healthy. And you could make an argument that Graham Leach blindly cocked the gun that triggered the financial crisis and that financial consolidation was overdone. And it actually reached a point where the biggest banks need to be very, very heavily regulated. So perhaps. Mike, again, going back to your rainbow of opportunities that we've got, where do you think are the worst ones? Where are the kind of minefields you really want to avoid or the places that just don't ever seem to be able to fix themselves? parts of the market that maybe look like opportunities, but it turns out to be a complete mirage when you get there. Aviation, after 9-11, had a spectacular decade and a half, just legendary. And that pushed pricing low, terms loose. And aviation has been trying to climb out of that hole ever since, because the world is now producing experiences that are problematic for aviation. We had a scattering of crashes of various sorts a few years ago. We had the whole MAX incident. We had the pandemic. And now we have this war. And there are some resonances of that in CAT on a larger scale. The most poisonous thing for this business is 15 loss-free years because that generates a whole race of soft market geniuses that develop products like aviation with unlimited sideways risk. In their night sweats, certain aviation underwriters now think about how that could 
pour a strong double-digit billion loss into the market because the way that aviation is written, there is essentially endless sideways cover. In CAT, the corollary is all perils, including but not limited to aggregate retro, which it turns out includes power grid failure, pandemic, as well as the resurgence of wildfire and severe convective storm, along with the hurricanes and earthquakes it was intended to cover. So the most problematic thing about a long, benign period is not just that pricing goes down, it's that terms get out of whack. And then you really have to stand back and start to redesign the product. So are you saying that aviation is one of your places that, you know, it's the Mirage type of class? It's been a Mirage since 2017, Mark, or a Mirage, as we say. Yeah. Is that the curse of non-correlating classes, though, that they're always attractive to somebody? Because, hey, it doesn't correlate with my other classes. And it's quite small, and then you can easily destabilize it just by appearing. I actually call it the curse of glamour. I managed all structured finance at Goldman, and there are glamour asset classes like aviation insurance or film finance, and they always attract too much capital. They're just too much fun. <laughs> well, I worked at Heath, yes, and so I know all about film finance. And also, it was quite nice to be able to put Air France on our brochure. It sort of gave us a calling card to any of our clients. But I'm not sure it made any money for us as a broker, even. Yeah, let me tick through a few things that we're concerned about. We're concerned about large parts of new issue casualty. Our view is that there is 30 plus billion dollars sitting in alt litigation funds. And all of that is aimed at casualty. Every dollar in alt litigation funds, every dollar is raised with the expectation of getting to three times money. Every dollar is raised with the intent of splitting the contingency fee with the lawyers who in turn are splitting the award with the plaintiffs. So that's a four times multiple on one side and a three times multiple on another. All litigation finance, in order for all those LPs to be satiated, and they all expect to be, there's going to be more than $150 billion of losses coming through casualty. All litigation finance is a hurricane that is looking for you. (laughs) So we are very shy around EPLI, product liability, certain parts of corporate GL. We're thoughtful about, you know, potential downstream impacts. So you say employment practice, liability insurance, areas like that, do you see that as the kind of bleeding edge of where the new, it's such a cliche for us to say the new asbestos, but rather like the new asbestos. Are these the sort of things that they're targeting? I've done a podcast recently with someone on head injuries, for example, in sport, concussion, that kind of stuff. Where you can see all litigation finances in the explosion of mass torts. Asbestos was the mass tort for a long time. And then yep. pollution was the mass tort. Yep. You know, launching a mass tort is a capital intensive endeavor. You've got to do research. You've got to find plaintiffs. It takes a lot. All litigation finance speeds that up. So we see mass torts pop up like mushrooms. Yep. Football collision head industries, environment, me too. Child abuse in religious environments, child abuse in scouting environments. Roundup, talcum powder, you know, and it goes on and on. And mass torts are being studied and proposed across many other stretches. DNO is being pretty disrupted by litigation finance. And actually, to ask you, what about the COVID? It seems like the obvious one that should be slapping us in the face, but it doesn't seem to have slapped us in the face yet. Is it far too early to assume that we can sort of sing a victory song? Well, you're talking about COVID as a loss versus COVID as a risk. As a liability loss. 
PPLI. Yeah. There are people standing by on the phone ready to help you if somehow your work environment caused you trouble in COVID. They are financed by litigation funds. So aviation is a soft spot. New issue casualty is a soft spot. CAD is uneven. Parts are okay. Parts are not quite okay. We're not really entranced with longevity as risk. We don't think it's been particularly well-priced. You can see that in the life settlement theater. Virtually all life settlements have been mispriced. In my mind, it's a Sodom and Gomorrah sector. The Lord said to Lot, if you can find 20 good people, then I'll save the city. And he couldn't find 20. If you can find 10, <laughs> I'll save the city. You know, in life settlements, you I dare anybody come and show me like, a longevity forecast that hasn't slipped. And it's because longevity is very complicated. Actuaries treat it like it's an actuarial variability risk. And it has a lot to do with medical technology development, lifestyle, and those things aren't being modeled. It's funny because it was their original risk, wasn't it? You know, going back to the Scottish Enlightenment or whenever it was, when the first sort of widows and orphans sort of mutual was fully funded, it was one of the first actuarial calculations of the 18th century, wasn't it? People need to spend a lot more time thinking about stationariness. And that doesn't mean that that's the end of the discussion. For some people, the discussion ends when they determine that a risk is non-stationary. But some people try to pretend this a non-stationary risk is stationary. Longevity risk is non-stationary. It moves with tech. And we don't think that it's pricing for it. Cyber is non-stationary. It definitely moves with tech. But we think that some of cyber is actually being priced properly. So cyber is more interesting. CAT is non-stationary, but in narrower bands. CAT is non-stationary, but with a climate and a legal drift term. And if those are assessed properly, I think you can deal with CAT. And you can see where the buildings are anyway. Yeah. It is not quite stationary, but it's not radically non-stationary. We should all be talking a lot more about stationariness or non-stationariness. Yeah, and in terms of actually to get you on that last point on CAT, one of your prime subjects, obviously everyone wants to be able to price for climate change. Do you think they're going to be able to? I mean, is anyone going to buy it? Because basically, you know, 2006, that renewal, of course, we had seven landfalling cats in the preceding two years. Now we've had this very bad run. And now if we go on another clean run, is it the market's never going to wear this idea that the risk is increasing year on year? Well, we really have a crisis and homeowners in the Southeast and California for different but related reasons. And I think that first and foremost, getting homeowners priced to a level where the companies can support managing the risk that they have is going to take some work. I think that when I talked earlier about the need to design policies that fit the times, there was a long benign period in this country for homeowners insurance. A lot of homeowners insurance were created or grew in that period and designed very loose policies. I think policies are going to have to be a lot tighter around specifying that claims must pay for damage about involving insurance companies and policyholders in a dialogue about who's going to fix things, about defining a boundary line between maintenance and loss. Insurance policies are not priced to replace everybody's roof every 20 years. In the old days, that was a maintenance function. That was part of what you did as a homeowner. We can either price insurance policies to replace everybody's roof every 20 years, or we can define that a little bit more sharply. But homeowners insurance needs to be defined more sharply it needs to be priced properly. Then we go to the reinsurance and the retrocessional layers. They need to receive a proper turn on their risk. They certainly weren't at that point in 1718. It's debatable whether we're getting there. We do see some good values. We actually tend to see better values on the homeowner's end. It's more turbulent, but you can actually 
pick up the, the pick and shovel and get to work yourself. So I actually spend a lot of time on policy wordings and on pricing on that end of the business. I think in the long run, it'll generate more return than trying to take reinsurance up 5% a year. Well, you've got to drill right down to the original wordings of everything that you're doing. It was, it was a bit like that moment in the big short where one of the investors went right down to get to know some of these homeowners who were on, who were on their second and third mortgages. Is it a bit like that, Mike? You get down to that level of detail. Well, yes, in order to understand the risk. And then, yes, because ultimately, if you fix at that level, it creates more return on your investment of capital and time. Obviously, we have got the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, so you've got a transport finance arm, which I presume does finance quite a lot of airliners, ultimately. Do you have any exposure to that or any view on that? Or is that because you're more of the pure finance level, is that all insured? Well, we're not talking about insurance now. We're talking about transport because our transport business is in the transport equipment side of the business. I think that there will be losses at lessors and in some cases in airlines because of what's going on now. You're well informed from both ends. so from some of the stories we've been seeing recently, that some of those numbers are quite eye-wateringly large. Do you give them some credence? Potential exposure is well over $20 billion. Yeah. How much of that will settle into the insurance industry versus the leasing industry is unclear. Yeah. I think it is clear based on market cap movements that investors expect that both will get some impact from it, but it'll take a while to sort out. Because aviation insurance is exotic and unusual in that it can be canceled on short notice. Yeah. So there will be a lot of fighting over whether this loss is from sanctions or from war, and that determines which policy form it goes under, and it also determines how to count those cancellation periods. This is going to be a complicated legal unwinding following immediately upon such an unwinding in the case of COVID business interruption. These things aren't good for the industry. The industry is going to have to think carefully about wordings coming out of this. You know, there are lazy habits that need to be addressed. Endless sideways risk is not a good habit because endless sideways risk is really more a test of your imagination <laughs> than a quantitative risk endeavor. And this has clearly exceeded some folks' imaginations. I want to stand back and say that, you know, I've gone through some soft spots, but in the broad stretch of specialty property, and in areas of casualty, like cyber, like auto, like runoff, we see great opportunities right now. And the life health sector has been a star lately. Life health is in transformation right now. About 15% of life health AUM, assets under management, is now consolidated into private asset conglomerates like Blackstone and Apollo and Carlisle. And that movement is ongoing. I wouldn't be surprised if that number was 30 by the end of this decade. There are opportunities across that transition. I would argue it's actually good for the life insurance industry. It brings the industry closer to private assets and the sorts of private returns that can supply better products to consumers. It brings these private asset conglomerates in touch with long-term funding sources. So it's a huge and majestic evolution toward a combined life insurance and investment industry. And we're participating in that. And there are opportunities. There were fewer opportunities four years ago. Four years ago, PE conglomerates were bidding each other down in order to get platforms. We were finding over and over again that deals were pricing inside of our return tolerances. That's really changed over the past 36 months. 
It's a great time to put money to work in life health, in life health specialty finance, in life health distribution. That whole industry is moving in a way that we don't talk about very much. What about PNC distribution? Do you think broker valuations are finally going to peak at some point? We've just been watching them go up and up and up. Well, PC distribution tends to be sticky. I've talked about why. Let's go back to talking about feelings. <laughs> People certainly don't want to think about risks, and they tend to have a lot of inertia in sticking with an intermediary that can win their trust. So that's effectively what's being priced marked. So what's going on is that the P&C world, you know, this went on about 20 years ago in the corporate world. In the regular corporate world, there are businesses where people go to work every day and they try to sell stuff and people decide whether or not to buy stuff and you get some momentum, ideally, and that's a firm. Or there's another type of business where the revenues are contractual or hyper sticky, like music publishing royalties or quick service restaurant franchise royalties, or in the old days, the yellow pages, that's gone. But there are hyper sticky revenues. And the regular way leveraged finance market felt good about taking a company's debt to cap up to four, five, six times. But for these hyper sticky companies, you could take the debt to cap up to eight and nine times. And this is in an older regime of higher rates. What the world is discovering is that PNC agency and broker revenues tend to be hyper sticky. So the debt quanta are being reset and the enterprise values are being reset upward. That won't be true forever. Tech's eventually going to disrupt this. What about interest rates? Because if it's all debt funded, do the interest rates squish down the multiples eventually? Absolutely. We still don't know what's happening with rates. Yeah. We still don't know whether we have a burst of post-COVID inflation that will recede or whether we have a period of higher rates, which will start to move those values. It's very unclear, Mark. While it's true that there's been some level of money printing going on for a long time, at the same time, there are deflationary forces at work in the world that are very powerful from globalization, from tech, from COVID. Yep. So getting to the right balance of those, it will take some examination to understand. Well, Mike, I've come to the end of all my questions. In fact, I've certainly thrown in plenty that weren't on the original list. So I just thank you so much for giving a valuable time, this particularly exciting time for you where you're seeing so many more potentially profitable opportunities than you were when you first started. So I don't want to take you away from that, but I just want to thank you for giving up that time and opening up your considerably large brain to our listeners. I really, really appreciate it. And I'd have you on the show every week, Mike. Very kind, undoubtedly incorrect. Um, <laughs> in fact, we have run over into one of the most important events of my week, which is ESG committee, which gets us into a whole set of additional factors. We'll have to do another podcast on that one, Mike, because we've run out of time. So thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. Great to talk. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark 
at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance podcast is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>